Welcome to Evolution Impossible, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. Our host is Dr. Sven Estring with special guest Dr. John Ashton and our panel. Welcome back to this fascinating journey, Evolution Impossible, where we're exploring whether Darwin's theory of evolution could have really happened. I'm Dr. Sven Ersteng. Maybe at some stage in your life, when you stop to really think about what was needed to happen for evolution to work, you suddenly wondered if it was really possible. You might have felt really alone at that point in time because there are so many scientists that say that evolution is a fact. In this journey, Dr. John Ashton has been confirming that you are not alone and he has provided us with a cumulative case for why evolution really is impossible. It's also encouraging to know that Dr. Ashton is not alone either. There are many other scientists who have rejected evolution as well. Back here in the studio with me is Tim Turner. Good to have you back here with us. We've also got Morgan Vincent, my good friend. Glad to have you on with this conversation and Harley Southwell. Glad to have your intriguing and inquiring mind as, as well. John, you actually embarked on a project a number of years ago, um, which was to contact at least 50 scientists to find out their view of evolution. Can you describe to us the process through which you entered into and engaged in this project? Sure. Um, one of the things I was just shopping for a uh, book actually on radiometric dating uh, in a uh, bookshop uh, that sold a lot of creationist material and uh, a, a person came out from uh, the, the back room and said, oh, I recognise that voice. And he said to me, uh, John, look, hope you didn't mind, but we actually quoted your name at a conference. That and could be a bad thing. Well, that's right. I was a bit uh, wanted to find out what was going on. And he said, what happened was, he said, we pre presented a uh, seminar on the evidence for creation uh, at Macquarie University in Sydney. And uh, the uh, director of the uh, Sydney Museum stood up and said, well, look, I don't believe that any practising scientist with a PhD would believe in a literal six-day creation. And they mm. said, well, there's so-and-so uh, who works at the Atomic Energy Commission and there's uh, John Ashton, the industrial chemist. And uh, they said, so I hope you didn't mind using your name. And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm happy to witness uh, for the Lord. Mm. And as I was going for a walk a little later, I thought, well, why not write two scientists who reject evolution, who believe in the literal six-day creation, and actually ask them why, mm. why they do. No strings attached, just ask them why. It's a good plan. And so I contacted a few friends that I knew, uh, a few professors uh, around at different universities, and they told me about colleagues, and I emailed them. Fortunately, email had started mm. up back then because this was in the late 1990s. And I contacted over 80 uh, scientists, and I got, uh, most of them were, were happy to um, uh, agree. And I got well over 70 uh, replies. Now, what I did was I had a look through these. I selected, I wanted as many uh, women scientists as possible. So mm -hmm. if a woman uh, sent a, an article, it automatically got in. So a bit of <laughs> gender balance. Yeah, there, get yeah. a bit of gender balance. But the other thing was too, I wanted the book to be uh, affordable and I had a 120,000 word limit on the book. Now, some of the scientists had 
contributed very good articles, but they might have been 5,000 words or more. So that, and I wanted 50 scientists because Thank that you. was a very strong number, I thought, if I can have 50. So I hope so, you had a few engineers in that number. I did, well. yes. The very yeah, first know. one is, uh, was a top American engineer who uh, headed uh, the underwater propulsion research lab for the US Navy, actually. Yeah, a brilliant uh, engineer. Mm. And um, so the book was put together essentially 50 scientists' articles that fitted into that 120,000 words. And I mm-hmm. think I'm only about you know 20 or 30 words short of that limit. So some of my detractors say, oh, I've, I've picked the best argument. But no, it was whether or not they fitted in that uh, timeline because they were all very good and a huge variety. Now, sometime later, Richard Dawkins did a review of my book. And one of his criticisms was, well, you know, these guys have been trained at uh, church-based universities. Of course, they're going to believe in creation. But really, that was not a fair comment because only 10 of the 50 had trained at a church-based university. All the rest had trained at secular universities. It's pretty amazing that you caught the attention of Richard Dawkins at Oxford University. Yes. Well, the the evidence that they provide, a lot of very high-profile scientists contributed to the book Mm. by people who were head of... uh, quite prestigious laboratories. They had qualifications where they trained at the best universities in the world and so forth. Mm. And so these are top scientists that contributed to this book. So it's a pretty amazing network of creationist scientists in the world. Yes, well, there's a lot more now. I mean, that was uh, 20 years ago. Maybe your book has been influential, (laughs) leading more to to accept the Bible. Uh, Well, it has been cited at uh, secular conferences on uh, science and philosophy and faith and science, this sort of thing, yes. And what sort of ranking does it have on Amazon.com? Oh, well, it has, uh, in the areas of creation books, it's it's often in the top 20 books still selling on Amazon. Mm. This is Mm. 20 years after it first came out in... Uh, so that's that's really really good, and it's gone through many printings. Um, it's been translated into German, Italian, Korean, Chinese, yes, uh, Spanish, not Chinese as far as I know, uh, Portuguese. Uh, so quite a, a number mm. of uh, different languages. And the good thing is that you've actually included some of those. Uh, scientific, um, the, the reasons from a number of those scientists in your book, Evolution Impossible. And so what we wanted to do today is just kind of uh, introduce some of those scientists to, to mm. the, the panel and to the viewing audience as well. And Tim, I just wanted to, to ask you, was there any scientist in the book, Evolution Impossible, that really stood out to you? And uh, what, what really uh, inspired you with their, uh, their case against evolution? Well, it was really two. Um, I was a bit greedy, but... Um, <laughs> that's that's uh, that, not a problem. You've got 50 <laughs> to choose from. <laughs> uh, the first one uh, is Dr... Uh, I think it's Werner Kitt. I'm not Werner sure if it's German. Yes. With it. Yeah, but um, his, his uh, I guess, work with information theory and uh, him being a, a, an actual sort of authority on, on information and stuff, his look at, at the different levels of information that there are, so the first one's really basic, is just a, you know, if you were to take a Scrabble bag and drop it on the floor, it'd still be information, but it wouldn't make any sense, it doesn't transmit anything to anyone. Um, but the more complex levels, there's five different levels, and the, the mm. most complex level was something that, that transmits a message um, with an expectation of a response. And I thought, well, wow, that's really interesting. He goes on to say that that's, that's pretty much what DNA is. 
uh, it is the highest level of, of information that we, we know. Um, and then that was kind of combined with the, the next guy in your book, uh, Dr. Andy McIntosh. And um, his, some of his work was, was really interesting. I might quote if that's okay, because it's a little bit hard to, to remember all the details. But he says that um, the, the biological structures contain coded instructions that are not defined by the matter and energy of the molecules carrying this information. And it made me really think, it's like, well, where does information then come from? Mm. Um, and he goes on to say that the, the, it's, it's got to come from outside of that. And so it's like that, that for me really just like when you're talking about that specific information, um, that was something I thought, well, these guys really, they've done their, their due diligence and, and like they're, they're being honest with the evidence that they've got in front of them. I was kind of wondering though, um, is there a- any specific reason why the information has to come from outside the cell itself? Well, yes, because it has to come from an intelligence. And I think that's one of the points of uh, Dr. McIntosh's paper, that uh, energy, for example, can't somehow produce meaningful information. So this was uh, uh, hopeful that early along some of the uh, pro-evolutionists thought maybe sunlight somehow could stimulate Uh, information could stimulate some sort of design, that some sort of energy system came in. And essentially what uh, he's saying is that, no, the material world, energy, matter and so forth, can't produce by itself intelligent design. It can't encode by itself information. That code has to come. So the sun out there can't suddenly send us a message, I am 93 million miles away. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it, it just can't do that. There, and there's nothing out there. That inf- that's information. It's actually sort of non-material or abstract mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to the material. So in all the cases, I think as mentioned earlier, it mm-hmm. comes from an outside source, mm-hmm. uh, an intelligent outside source already operating. Mm-hmm. Powerful evidence for the existence of God, actually, when you read his paper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole um, area in science and in the community called SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, <laughs> where they're, they're looking for information coming um, through radio waves um, to, to the Earth. Um, and if you find that information being transmitted, uh, the, the natural um, conclusion is that there's intelligence out there. Yep. And so Stephen Myers would say in his book, um, The Signature in the Cell, if we find that similar kind of encoded information in the cell, it's a, it's a signature, it's an indicator to point towards an intelligent uh, creator and designer as well. Mm. Uh, it's, it's really quite amazing. So, it is, yeah. Mm. Mm. Morgan, how about yourself? Uh, was there anybody that really stood out to you amongst this uh, collection of 50 scientists? There was. Yeah, there was uh, the Professor David Gower, uh, professor at uh, the University of London, and he brings out three major points uh, of why he refutes uh, the evolutionary theory and model. Uh, the first one has to do with the isotopic dating, uh, you know, method of, you know, fossils, age of, of matter and whatnot. Radiometric dating? Yeah, yeah, as well. And so I found that quite fascinating to, to observe that, that when he looks at all the evidence, when he observes it and, and took research in that, he, he couldn't find it matching up. Uh, the second one is what he would refer to as the basic building blocks. And again, he just finds order, he finds intelligence with that. And, and following on what you were mentioning, Tim, that again, it just can't happen per chance. 
The, the third point that uh, Professor Gao brings up is his own study uh, after many decades of studying. And although I haven't studied to the same level he has, uh, what I do resonate with him though is as he was, so I try to be as well, that when I'm intellectually honest with myself, like Professor Gower, when we see all things around in, in the world, uh, we see order, we observe design, we observe this and have to come, come to the conclusion, well, if there's order, if there's design, then there's a, there's a, a mind behind this. Mm. And so, you know, in, in my field of, of studying, uh, you know, undertaking postgraduate studies now, you know, I can see that as well in all matter of life that there is that design as well. So a question, if I may, Dr. Ashton, mm. is a professor like Dr. Gower or, or you know, others uh, in your book or around the world, they undertake such a pursuit of study in whatever field with such purpose and intent. How, how do you perceive those who do study with such purpose then coming to the end of their study and finding that there is no purpose to life? Whereas the 50 scientists here have taken that pursuit of, of study with purpose and have found purpose. There's mm -hmm. this almost, this split, this fork in the road where they pursue their study with purpose and then some do find purpose and then some don't. Mm. No, that, that's, that's true. I mean, the, and those scientists are atheists and they're mm. content with that, that this world is, is all there is. I think one of the things that uh, just comes to mind as I mix around in the academic circles, um, there are probably a lot more scientists who actually believe in God mm -hmm. um, and they just haven't confronted the evolution issue as, mm. as such. They've heard about, but they're not working in that field. They might be working in some other field of biology, but it doesn't come into the evolutionary aspect. Or they might be working in, you know, engineering or medicine or you know, biomedical research, these sort of areas. And so it's sort of like, uh, well, that's, that's there. I'm not, I'm not going there. I believe in God. I go to church. I'm doing my research and I'm doing it well. Mm. And I think we'll find there's a large number of scientists like that because they've gone through the education system. They've been, in order to get their degree, they've passed the exams, they've had to learn about evolution, but then they've moved on into other fields that aren't directly related to that. Mm -hmm. and, but they haven't gone into the area to research. And now, Professor David Goer, he was in the area where he discovered some of the human hormones and mm -hmm. you know, he's a world-famous uh, biochemist, so he's right at that frontier, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in mechanisms. And also he was very interested as, as a Christian uh, to, to delve into this. And I think it's just a shame. There are certainly many top scientists that yeah, they never find, never find God. Mm. Mm. It's really sad. Mm. What about you, Harley? Uh, was there anybody who really stood out to, yeah. to you as you um, read this book? Dr. Kersey Thompson, the former director of the U.S. Air Force Terrestrial Science Laboratory, uh, he made a very interesting point when I was reading through the book about uh, how evolution uh, cannot uh, be in, 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 in agreement with the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, and basically the second law of thermodynamics is simply teaching that we observe everything to slowly be breaking down over time. If you put something out into just a vacuum, over time it will degenerate. It will not become more complex. It will fall apart instead. And I think this is something we've, we've talked about, you know, how there's no added DNA, you know, DNA coming through mutation, but it's all stuff falling apart. We look out in the universe and we see stars burning up rather than 
burning in and all, all these different kinds of things. Uh, and so it was, he's making a very good point about you know, this, you know, uh, a, a random event creating order isn't possible when we observe the second law of thermodynamics, a, a scientific law, mm. uh, which, 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 is, which is very well founded. Uh, but that also did have a question that I was thinking about as well. If we look out in the universe and if we look on our own, our, our own planet and look at our own bodies and, and so on and so forth and we see the second law of thermodynamics in action of things breaking down and not, not necessarily becoming more beautiful but becoming more ugly over time, uh, why would a loving God create that kind of law in the universe that would slowly cause everything to fall apart if God's supposed to be the, the creator and sustainer. Mm. Yes, so the Bible, as God has revealed to uh, people that really believed in him, such as Paul, when he wrote that he is currently sustaining everything. Um, but we also know that uh, God talks about the consequences of evil and the effects of evil that have been allowed to, to happen because that was man's choice. Man chose to disbelieve God and to believe Satan in the, in the fall. Mm-hmm. And, and essentially, the, the bottom line is that by choosing to believe Satan over God, it essentially meant that they accused God of being a liar. Now, if you're a liar, it's very hard to ever prove yourself because mm-hmm. whatever you say... Is considered well, false. Yeah, considered false, yes, or, or could be. You know, you don't yeah. know where you are. So God had to prove it. And of course, we know he demonstrated what he was like through him coming to earth as a human and living as Jesus Christ and allowing humans to put him to, to death. Uh, we, know, we can see then that God at that time said, okay, well, when we hand over domain to this sort of power that no longer is based on love and truth, then we have other effects take place. And I think that corresponds to the law of, you know, well, thermodynamics is, is part of that. Now, whether that was there in Eden, it probably was to a degree okay. because it can drive thermodynamic processes. But God can continually replenish things yep. mm-hmm. as well. So we've okay. got a, a supernatural situation. So it's almost like God is saying, well, look, I'm still, I'm still there. I'm still sustaining everything. But I'm just withdrawing a little bit and letting, you've made these choices, I'm letting it follow on with the choice. So it's sort of like with a, with a child, as you're yeah. teaching a child, um, they're going to be disobedient. And there's times where you absolutely stop them. You don't want them to run out on a road. But there's other times when you say, well, if you, know, you, you continue to play like that, you're going to fall off that and you're going to hurt yourself. But it's only going to be a little way. And you, you let them learn the consequences. But at the same time, you're limiting how far to make sure they don't hurt themselves, but you want them to learn some lessons. And I think the whole universe is learning a lesson of when we turn to evil, this is what happens. Mm. Mm. But I mean, I don't know. They're they're only thoughts. (laughs) Mm. We don't know. Another person that you mentioned in your book is a geophysicist by the name of John Baumgartner. And uh, he worked at the the very famous Los Alamos National Laboratory. Mm. Um, But he made a comment or used a term, I should say, the Einstein gulf. Uh, could you explain what that is? Because that sounds quite intriguing. Mm. Yeah, so it's very similar to what the paper that was referred to earlier by uh, Dr. Andy McIntosh, and that is uh, essentially that material things can't carry the concept of abstract 
ideas. Hmm. And so you, a rock can't tell you that it's on the ground or a rock can't tell you that it's hot or, or something like this. And so there's, a, there's an idea of, of, of communication. Uh, another of course, way, it can be hot. It can it just, be hot. But it but can't it, tell you that it's hot. It can't tell me that, yeah. So it can have physical properties, but it can't communicate this. Mm. And so what it's saying is that when we use uh, language, and so we've got, say, the word here, evolution, written in English, so it mm. involves little letters, right? And those letters are written in ink on this bit of paper here. And, and they're physical molecules as mm. such. But they they can't actually say anything. They can't. Those molecules can't say anything. Mm. There's a gulf. What it is is an abstract thing. My mind looks at those symbols, and in my mind, I read that and I say, "There's a message there that is saying that evolution is impossible." Mm. And so that's a very abstract thing. And so what it's essentially saying, what Einstein's essentially saying is that in the theory of evolution, it works on chemical mutations, it works on material things. Mm. Those material things can't develop or communicate a concept of, of information, mm. right? And there's a, it can never be, they can't spontaneously, material things don't have any property that encodes intelligence and design, all these mm. things, because these are abstract things. Design is an abstract thing. You know, when you're designing a house, you may be going to have a house built and you have an idea, I'd like the bedroom there and the bathroom there and so forth. These are abstract ideas. They're not real. It hasn't been built yet. Mm. But you can picture it and you can make it. That's an abstract. And then you can communicate it. You can communicate it with those words. You know, I want the bathroom upstairs. You know, and so you get a message and that can go across to the builder who can say, yes, I can do that. I can put the bathroom upstairs. Mm. And so we're communicating, but that's nothing to do with the air molecules that are coming out of my mouth, vibrating, carrying sound, vibrating off the eardrums, connecting little nerves, sending a message to the brain. That's all Mm. material things, but it's transmitting a concept. And that's why saying there's a gulf and the evolution model is pure material. It's the materialistic world worldview. Mm. So this is the you know the Einstein golf, and it gets mm. us into this non-material side of things, which is really fascinating. It's the God side of things. Mm. Yeah. Cool. So having read through all of these fifty or seventy uh, responses from these scientists, um, did you pick any themes coming through that that you know was really? kind of unified all of these um, scientists' reasoning with regards to uh, rejecting evolution and, and heading towards belief in God or, or believing in God? It's interesting. I think they all had uh, certainly very common interests in, um, in science. Sure. I mean, they had very strong scientific reasons for believing in God as mm. well as strong faith reasons. Sure. But maybe you meant to ask the, the question to the audience there. I'm sorry. Go for it. So any, any other questions that you might have with regards to these scientists and, and their reasons for rejecting evolution? Oh, so I, there, was, there was the point made earlier about Richard Dawkins' re- response to your book, saying that you know, these, these scientists came from uh, you know, faith-based institutions where they earned their, where they earned their uh, degrees and PhDs and so forth. But you said that that wasn't, wasn't the case for all of them. But how many of them really may have been grown up in a faith uh, mm. and then have mm. maybe taken a confirmation bias into science? Um, or have you, are we seeing scientists who are 
becoming an atheistic, seeing design mm. and then deciding to believe in a creator? Sure. So that, that, uh, I, in order to answer that question, I actually went a step further. And what I did was I wrote to scientists around the world who I heard were Christians, and I asked them, why do you believe in God, in the miracles of the Bible, answer to prayers, and, um, and, and the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ? And um, again, I got these responses, and one of the conditions to contribute was that you had to be educated at a secular university and taught at a secular university mm. as well. And a number of those people actually became Christians while they were studying at university. Really? Interesting. So, and they gave their personal testimony there. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it's, it, the book came out as The God Factor, published by HarperCollins. Yep. Um, it's still available under the title On the Seventh Day. as a sequel to In in Six Days. Mm -hmm. But that's an amazing book there because all these scientists had that background, educated in secular universities, had academic positions, tenured positions in secular universities. And many of them came from that that background. And I actually noticed that that when I became a Christian. It was after completing my first uh, degree at university and while a research fellow at the University of Tasmania. So... um, you know, I, and I thought a number of the contributors did that. Mm. 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 Any other questions that you guys might have? Just maybe more an observation that uh, it seems by, you know, the discussion that's taken place today that science and faith aren't mutually exclusive, uh, but rather they, they kind mm. of build off each other. They, they feed with each other, uh, two sides of the same coin, so to speak. Well, it's a classic example, that, of John Pokinghorn, who was uh, professor of theoretical physics at the University of Cambridge, resigned his mm. position mm. to study theology. Mm. And, um, you know, he's, he's a very strong Christian. Matter of fact, I think Stephen Hawking uh, took, uh, Hawken took his place. Um, so that's, you know, that's, yeah. that's quite fascinating. So we have, you know, top physicists. And I think when people, particularly in the area of physics, mm. they realise, whoa, there's so many really interesting things going on here that uh, there's so much evidence of a creator God mm. out there behind the systems that we observe in the universe. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool stuff. Mm. Yeah, real, you know, real scientific research points to the Bible. So many of the great scientists in the past, like Isaac Newton, he spent more time writing in the area of the Bible and, and looking at Bible prophecy than in the area of, of, of physics and science, wow. you know? James Clark, Maxwell, similarly, you know, top scientists. It's an amazing thing. You know, there is a growing number of people who are rejecting Darwin's theory of evolution. That's the way science works. When we discover evidence which demonstrates that a scientific theory is false, we need to be honest and willing to reject it. That's why many scientists have decided to do and reject evolution. But what about you? What are you going to replace evolution with? I'd like to invite you to explore what the Bible tells us about how life began, how a God of love described in the Bible created a beautiful world in just six days. Grab a Bible off your bookshelf or download a Bible app on your phone and start reading the Bible from the very first chapter. Also, get a copy of Dr. John Ashton's book, Evolution Impossible. It will help you realize that your decision to reject evolution is the right one to make. 
Did you realize that there's other evidence that God exists? Join us next time as we explore that powerful evidence that God wants a genuine relationship with you. We look forward to seeing you there. Thank you for joining us on Evolution Impossible, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au or call us within Australia on 024973 3456. We'd love to hear from you.